Good morning. My name's Tasha. I'm one of the staff here. I'll be doing the Bible reading this morning, um, which is from Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you today, if you don't own one, there's Bibles on the back table. We'd love for you to have one. You can take it and keep it. Um, I'll be reading Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 34. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these things I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it? Sorry, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replies, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Well, good morning, church. So good to see you all here this morning. Like Mark said, what better place to be than here at church? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the elders here at Tingabi Baptist Church. Um, and we're going to open up God's Word this morning. Uh, hopefully you've got it already open, as Tash read, from uh, Luke chapter 18. But before we get into it, let me just say a, qu a few quick words of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Uh, we know that there is gold to be found on every page of Scripture. And Father, as we open up one of those pages this morning, we just pray that you will speak to us. Uh, we pray that uh, you will uh, challenge us, and we pray that you will change us. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's a story told about a little boy who loved marbles. Did anyone here collect or have marbles when they were kids? When playing marbles? Having uh, bags full of them. Remember the cat's eyes? And the cages, I think the, we used to call them. Anyway, this little kid loved, uh, loved collecting marbles. He lived, he lived next door to a little girl who, who loved candy. She loved her chocolates, right? And the lollies. And one day she said to him, look, if you give me all of your marbles, I'm going to give you all of my candy. And he said, you think about it. The next day, he hid a few of the marbles away in his room. These favorite ones, you know, the rarest ones, he hid them away. And he offered her the rest in exchange for her candy. And they did the swap. And that night, this little boy, he couldn't sleep. He tossed and he turned and he turned and he tossed all night. He was troubled. He spent the night troubled and sleepless. And what do you think troubled him so much that he couldn't sleep? What was it? 
What troubled him was the thought, has she really given me all of her candy? <laughs> now, for those of you who were here last week, you'll remember that the passage that RJ preached on ended with a section where Jesus is surrounded by kids, he's surrounded by children, and instead of sending them away, like the disciples wanted him to do, he instead calls them to him and he says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. These are Jesus' Jesus's words, right? You see, children have such a simple and such a refreshing approach to God. And Jesus says that we must receive the, receive the kingdom of God in the same simple and trusting way. And as we go through our lives as Christians, we should always maintain that simple and gentle and trusting spirit of a child when it comes to our relationship with God. And the reason I mention this is, this morning is because it stands in complete contrast to the guy that we're about to meet in our passage today. And so this morning, I've, um, I've taken on the tradition of our pastors and I've split this sermon into three different parts. We're going to look at three different things this morning. The first thing we're going to look at is choosing not to surrender. Right? The second point is choosing to surrender. And then finally, the ultimate act of surrender. Okay, so choosing not to surrender, our first point. Now, the guy that we're about to meet this morning is mentioned in three of the four Gospels. Right, Matthew describes him as a young man. Luke, in our passage today, refers to him as a ruler. And Mark uh, says those things as well. But the thing is, all three of them make it very clear that this guy was very rich. He's an amazingly wealthy man. And his encounter with Jesus has been discussed and it's been debated throughout the centuries. He's quite arguably one of the few people who had a personal face-to-face encounter with Jesus, but left in a worse condition than when he first came. So let's have a closer look at this guy, all right? He's a ruler. Now, he's probably not a synagogue ruler because generally they were older men. So scholars believe that he was a wealthy, influential civic leader, who was most likely also known for his piety. He was known for being very religious. But the point of the story is that he was very rich. This guy had immense possessions. He was a man with tremendous wealth, but he wasn't satisfied. He knew that there was something missing. It's crazy, isn't it? This guy had everything that the world has to offer. Everything. Power, he had position, he had wealth, he had prestige, he had youth, he had outstanding morals. He was religious. And yet he knows, he knows deep down in his soul, he knows that there is something not quite right. There is something missing. Now there's a lot, a lot of negative things we can say about this rich young ruler. I mean, we'll get to that in a moment, but let's just give him credit for a moment, I reckon, right? Because he comes to the right source doesn't he? He comes to Jesus, right? He comes at the right time. He comes when he's still young. He's still in his youth. And he comes with the right attitude. 
Mark says, the Gospel of Mark says, that he actually ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees before him. And he comes with the right question. Good teacher, what must I do to, inter- to inherit eternal life? Now let's pick this apart for a sec. Good teacher, what must I do to, in- to inherit eternal life? Have a look at Jesus' initial response in Luke chapter 18. He says, Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, you know, I've read this before many times and I've sort of skimmed over it because I wanted to get to the, the juicy part of the story. And to be honest, I didn't really think this part was important. But the thing here is that there is no mention in Jewish history of anyone ever being called good. And that is because the Jews made it a point to only refer to God as good. No one else. This is extremely important for them. And so when Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God, or except God alone. See, Jesus isn't denying his deity here. In fact, he's doing the exact opposite. He's getting the guy to reflect on what he's just said. Right? Do you understand the implications of calling me good? Because no one is good except God. So therefore, right? You see, he's trying to lead him to the logical conclusion. You know that you're speaking to Jesus. You know that you're speaking to a good teacher, in fact, the best teacher. But do you also realize that you're in fact speaking to God in the flesh? What must I do to to inherit eternal life? You see, he's already on the wrong path here, isn't he? What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? life. It's as if the grace of God would come to him as that reward that he deserved for his obedience to God. He was a man who had worked hard for everything that he had. He was a man who was accustomed to setting a goal and then coming up with an action plan to reach that goal. The implication here is that there's something missing right? There's something that he had forgotten to do, something that he missed, some great deed that he could do that would complete his works and that would then merit salvation for him. Now what Jesus does next or does here is he takes this poor guy on a bit of a bit of a uh, emotional roller coaster ride. (laughs) Listen to the answering, uh, listen to the, well, his initial answer to the question. Jesus says, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Can you imagine how happy this guy would have been with that response? Yes, I'm covered. I've covered all that. The commandment, what do you mean the commandments? That's exactly what I've been doing my whole life. In fact, he says, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. You see, in his own 
humble opinion, this rich young ruler was completely confident that he'd met the standard. But he, like so many others, did not understand that keeping the commandments was more a matter of the heart than of the actual outward actions, as we've learned over the last couple of months. Now, Jesus knew that he hadn't kept the commandments as he should have. Jesus knew that, but he lets that slide for now. But isn't it true that we're like this guy sometimes? We think about the good things that we do, and we rate ourselves as good. We rate ourselves as righteous because of these things. You know, it reminds me of the Apostle's, Apostle Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Paul says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And let me, let me tell you a little bit about me. <laughs> now, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents became Christians and were baptized when I was a little less than a year old. I grew up in the church. My church attendance as a kid and as a, as a teenager growing up were impeccable. <laughs> Every Sunday it was church, church morning. In addition to that, there were midweek Bible studies, there were midweek prayer meetings. I've never touched drugs. I've never so much as taken a hit from a joint. And as for any harsher drugs or harder drugs, I've, I don't think I've ever seen any in, in the flesh. Um, I've never been drunk. Never been drunk in my life. Tipsy, maybe once, but I've never been drunk. I don't know what a hangover feels like. I've got no idea. I wasn't promiscuous. In fact, I've only ever had one girlfriend and there she is, my beautiful wife over there. I married my first girlfriend. I was a virgin when we got married. Might, might not have been a 40-year-old virgin, but I was a 27-year-old one. <laughs> Pretty impressive, right? But it doesn't end there. In the church that we came from before we came to this church, I was a deacon, served as a deacon for a couple of years, served as an elder for about almost 10 years. And as before we left that church, and this was completely unplanned, I had preached my last sermon, I had preached my hundredth sermon. And that's 15 to 20 hours of preparation per sermon, right? And now in this church, I've preached probably another 40 sermons. I'm an elder now, been an elder for about six years now. I was part of a group um, of, of very godly men and women who, who navigated this church through some very difficult times. I was part of another group of very godly men and women who were influential in, in calling our pastors, RJ and, and James, to this church, who, who are now navigating this church through a new chapter and a new journey. Pretty impressive stuff, right? I can be like that guy and cheer myself on, but here's the thing. As good as all those things are, and as, as grateful and thankful as I am to God for bringing me on the journey he's brought me on, none of those things... None of those things has brought me even one step closer to salvation or to eternal life. None of those good things that I've done has made me 
any more deserving of entry into the kingdom of God than if I hadn't done them. What does Paul say? But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have what? For whose sake I have lost all things. See, there are a lot of people in this world who are relying on their goodness to secure them a seat in heaven or a place in heaven. And our rich young ruler was no different. This guy's on a high at the moment, right? Because he thinks he's good, he thinks he's sweet. But what Jesus says next kind of brings him back down to earth. All these things I've done since I was a boy, he says. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Wow, he hits him, <laughs> hits him right between the eyes, doesn't he? Jesus gets right to the very heart of the issue. You see, this guy was not as sweet as he thought he was. In fact, he hadn't even made it past the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Because here's the thing, right? Let's not get misled here. It's not possessing riches that keeps people out of heaven. It's those riches possessing you that will do that. It's important for us to understand that Jesus never asked anyone, anyone else, to do what he's asking this rich young ruler to do. Selling your possessions and giving your money to the poor is not your ticket to heaven. The point here is that when Jesus looked into the heart of this man standing before him, he saw a man whose very identity, whose very security for this life and the next was wrapped up in his financial portfolio. His wealth was his God. He was banking on his wealth, and not only, not only his wealth, but his, his religion, his goodness, his morality. He was banking on those things to see him through into eternity. Now, to leave all that and to follow Jesus was the ultimate surrender of all that he had to the will of God. You know, there's this uh, famous painting painted by German artist Heinrich Hoffmann back in 1889. And he captures the moment in this encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler. The guy you can see is wearing his fancy clothes, he's got his fancy hat on. And Jesus is inviting him to give his money to the poor people in the background and to follow him. And the young guy looks down. He looks down as he thinks about the most important decision that this guy's going to have to make in his entire life. This painting captures that crucial moment, that, that decision between heaven or hell, the decision between life or death. He's only seconds away from deciding which way he's going to go. He considers the cost. Give it all away 
give it all away and follow Jesus? But man, I've got so much. I've earned it. And seconds later, he sadly, he shakes his head and he says, no, no, it's not worth it. And he walks away. The Bible says he walks away sad. You see, this is our first point here this morning. He makes the choice not to surrender. So the question for us, I guess, is what is it that keeps you from completely, completely giving yourself to Jesus? From making the choice to not just partially surrender your life to him, but to surrender your whole life to Christ. Is it money and possessions like it was for this guy? Is it a relationship? Is it an addiction? Is it a hobby? Is it that sense of complete control that you just can't let go of? What is the area of your life where you refuse to let God be God? You know, for a long time, this is what kept C.S. Lewis from coming to Christ. He didn't want to give up sovereignty and control over his own life. He wanted to be his own ultimate authority. And this is what he says. He says, there was no region, even in the innermost depth of one soul, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice. No admittance. And this is what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. See, so the rich young ruler chose to walk away from the kingdom of God just so he could hold on to his wealth a little longer. He chose not to surrender. But what's the alternative? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that's what brings us to point number two. The alternative is choosing to surrender. As the young man walks away from him, Jesus looks in his direction and he says these words. He says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what's Jesus doing? He's using hyperbole to make this statement. Now, hyperbole just means an exaggerated statement or claim that is not supposed to be taken literally, right? And this one is so exaggerated that it's almost comical. So Jesus uses the biggest animal in Palestine, a camel, and probably the smallest opening or hole in Palestine, which is a needle. And in fact, the word used here refers to a surgeon's needle, a needle used for very delicate procedures. Jesus wanted to show how hard it is for rich people like this rich young ruler who had just walked away to enter the kingdom of God. Rich people like this young rich ruler who had just walked away, who hold on to their wealth tightly and who consider that wealth as their source of trust and their source of security and their source of provision instead of letting go and trusting in God for those things. In fact, it's not just hard, it's impossible for someone to be saved on his or her own merit. Now, the people listening to what Jesus was saying, 
they understood his point immediately. And they couldn't believe what they were hearing. Right? Matthew says that they were astonished. Mark says that they were amazed at what Jesus was saying. And they asked, who then can be saved? You see, what Jesus was saying went against everything the Jews believed. Because they believed in, a, in an Old Testament sort of prosperity gospel that the rabbis taught. And they taught that wealth and that riches were, were a sign of God's acceptance. They were a sign of God's approval. They were a sign of God's blessing. So the richer you were, the better you were in God's eyes. So in other words, if this man, if this good man who is rich and young and religious, if he can't get into heaven, what chance do the rest of us have? And Jesus says, exactly, exactly, it's impossible. But look at the next line. Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God right? Because God specializes in the impossible. When Moses had an army in front of him and an army chasing him, he faced an impossible situation. But God specializes in the impossible and he created a 12-lane express highway in the middle of the sea, right? When Joshua faced an impregnable walled city, God told him to just march around it. What was that going to do? It was impossible. But the God of the impossible made those walls crumble, when the angel Gabriel visited a teenager named Mary and said and announced to her that she would give birth to a son who would be the, the, you know, the son of God, he would be the savior of the world. Mary said, how can this be since I'm still a virgin? What did Gabriel say to her? Nothing is impossible for God, right? Now, I think at this point, now remember the disciples are around Jesus and Peter's there and I think at this point Peter who is standing there I think he's slowly starting to get it you know he starts to wonder if his own personal sacrifice was enough he had left a lucrative fishing business he'd abandoned his wealth and, and, and any future wealth he'd even left his wife in the care of others in order to devote himself exclusively to the Messiah and to his mission. Peter said to him, this is to Jesus, Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. You know, I think that what they had just witnessed and heard had led these disciples to think about their own salvation. See, they were still in the process of learning who Jesus was and what it meant to follow him. And so Peter says to Jesus, look, Jesus, we've left. We've left everything to come and follow you. He was a man who didn't yet have the full assurance of his salvation. And what Jesus said about the camel and the needle kind of freaked him out and made it impossible to inherit eternal life and to be saved. Peter thought he was saved, but what if he wasn't? What if he was still lost? What does Jesus say to him and to the others? He says, truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, 
No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. See, what does Jesus do here? He reassures Peter and the other disciples. They've all done what he's just said, right? They've all left behind wealth and possessions and people, loved ones. The disciples have fulfilled what's been asked of them. They fulfilled the very thing that the rich young ruler couldn't or, or didn't want to. They had done the very thing that, that, that Jesus said the other guy had lacked. Where he chose not to surrender, where he chose not to sacrifice, they've decided to sacrifice and surrender all just to follow Jesus. See, they've already done it. They've already done it. They have left all to make God first in their lives, to have no other gods before him. And their reward, according to Jesus, says they will receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. You know, we've been looking at things from, I guess, from our perspective, right? Asking whether... Jesus is really worth it for us. The rich young ruler asked this question and sadly decided no. He wasn't worth it and he walked away. I'm sure the disciples asked themselves the same question when Jesus called them to follow him. Called them to follow him. And they all decided that yes, Jesus was worth it. He was worth leaving all behind and surrendering all to him and to his mission. But what Jesus says at the end of this passage kind of gets us to ask a slightly different question. Are we worth it to Jesus? Are we worth it to Jesus? And the question arises because these blessings that Jesus talks about for us, if we follow him, the ones that come in this life and then come in the next, they could only come at a huge cost for Jesus. The cost of his life. And this brings us to our third and final point today. The act of ultimate, or the ultimate act of surrender. Have a look with me at Luke 18, verses 31 to 33. And it's up on the, up on the screen there. Jesus took the, 12, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. You know, this shows a Jesus who knows exactly where the journey is heading, and yet he still decides to surrender all. And go through with it. He knows of the approaching suffering that he's about to face in Jerusalem. He knows it will be an intense time of shame, right? The Gentiles will seize him, they'll mock him, it says. They'll insult him, they'll spit on him, flog him. And eventually, after all this suffering that he goes through, they'll kill him. They'll take his very life from him. He knows all that is waiting for him, and yet Jesus still willingly 
decides to surrender his life. And it wasn't just that Jesus had to die, but he had to die in this way. With the cruel sufferings of a body that was abused before it was crucified and a soul that was completely forsaken by God. Was it worth to leave the majesty and glory of heaven and then put up with all the hardships of living in a fallen world among fallen men and women? Was it worth to endure the agony of the cross and die a painful and, and shameful death? Was it worth to be separated from the Father? And was it worth to go through all this, not for good people who loved him, but for sinners who had rejected him and turned their backs on him? Was it worth to die for people like us, whose sins brought Jesus to that cross in the first place? And people who sometimes wonder whether Jesus is really worth it for us. You know, with every step that he took towards Jerusalem, Jesus was saying, yes, yes, they are worth it. This was the ultimate act of surrender and sacrifice. You remember the story at the beginning about the marbles and the candy? Remember why the little boy tossed and turned all night wondering, <laughs> did she really give me all of her candy? Did she really give me all that she promised? That's the reason many people choose not to follow Jesus. They don't believe that Jesus will give them all he promised. And the rich young ruler, he was promised something, wasn't he? We kind of skipped over it, but have a look at verse 22 again. Jesus says to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And what's the promise? You will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. There are church folk all over the world that don't believe that. They don't believe that if they surrender all, and that if they trust in Jesus, that God will provide all that they need. And I get it. I do, I get it. It's, it's not easy letting go of stuff. Letting go of that which you hold dear and which you think you're convinced yourself will provide you security, but it doesn't. And if you don't let go of whatever that is for you, the only person who misses out is you. Don't turn away from Jesus and walk away sad because it's too hard. Because if you're willing to put it all on the line for Jesus, if you're willing to choose to surrender like the disciples did, if you're willing to put all your marbles, all your marbles on the table, Jesus promises that you will have treasure in heaven and that you will inherit eternal life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, firstly, we want to thank you for sending your son Jesus to this world. And Jesus, we want to thank you for leaving the, the glory and the majesty of heaven, for coming down to this fallen world, um, for loving us sinners, and for uh, surrendering all, for surrendering your position in heaven, for surrendering your very life uh, on the cross for us. So with that in mind, Lord, how could we not surrender all to you, knowing that all we have in the first place is yours anyway? So, Lord, I just pray that you've opened our eyes this morning, that, that we know now that 
we've earned nothing, we've deserved nothing. Um, but all that we have, all the good things, whether they're material or spiritual, Lord, they all come from you. And you are the source of all, of all goodness and all gifts. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.